It's certainly a blessing, isn't it, today to be assembled and to be gathered in the way that we are. I think as Gary mentioned during the outset of the announcements, it is certainly a bright and a very blessed thing that God has seen fit to allow us to assemble. And we're so thankful for each and every one, of course, that's able to do that today. It is true that we began a series of lessons last Lord's Day morning, and so let me encourage you to think with me briefly again today about a continuation of that series. We were looking at the family. It certainly is no overstatement to say that the family is a central, central thing in terms of the development, not only of our society, but certainly the well-being of individuals at large. I would submit to you that in recent months, recent years, we have seen tragedy after tragedy in this land. Folks taking the lives of others, sometimes children included, and in so doing, often those choices and those decisions that were made, one has to wonder about the fabric of the family and the understanding that was lacking. The appreciation of what God would have that person to know about the respect for himself as well as others. What about the family as the Word of God presents it? We looked last Sunday about a few things, and this opening slide is just a very, very brief reminder of some of those things. We learned then, did we not, how critical it is to appreciate the family is orchestrated by God. The blueprint belongs to Him. No man or group of men anywhere can claim ownership rights, if you please. God designed it. And if it's to run smoothly, if it's to run in the way that it should, it should follow His guidelines. And therefore, we learned a number of kinds of homes that are seen in our land today around the world are not acceptable. Things that involve adultery or fornication or homosexuality, things that involve dysfunction in a number of ways. As we come to this lesson today, it's fair to say that you and I know it well. To orchestrate a family the way that it ought to be requires commitment. You know that there's going to be so many forces levied against it. The devil will make sure that there is an onslaught of adversarial matters, and if one isn't de dedicated, determined, and committed to the things of God, ultimately the waters of evil will wash over that family. Today, what about the men? Those individuals in a family that are males, we'll look at them first today. As we do that, you'll notice that there's a whole host of things stated in the Word of God that could very well be asserted to be so positive. Paul made mention, as you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 1.16, about Bible households and how that the household of Stephanus obeyed the gospel. Fathers... As you think about the nature of your own family, is there any more blessed matter than to say that your household is obedient to the gospel, including your wife, your children, perhaps sons-in-law or other things that may come on down the line? What a marvelous blessing it is. Today, as we think about men and their place in the family, I think all of us as men certainly will be reminded of some things that God has to say to us, but not only reminded, maybe encouraged in a renewed way to carry out some of those things that the Word of God has before us. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the character of the creation and how men came about in the way that they did. I realize that those in the world of biology and even other scientific arenas 
would be so quick to almost as factual state that men evolved. They ultimately came about millions of years ago by virtue of an ungodly process. God no part of it. But that's nothing but rubbish. It's nothing but figments of imagination. There has never been a single scientific experiment to illustrate that something inanimate could become animate. And if evolution happened, that's what had to occur. To the contrary of all of that, the Word of God opens with such majesty and says in Genesis chapter 1, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Even though that occurred on the sixth day of God's creative activity, prior to that had been, of course, all the animal kingdom. And then, at the pinnacle of God's creation, He fashioned this man, this human being. Far different than any animal, far different than anything he had made previously. He made man, and then later that day he made woman, and those two were so unique. You'll notice as you look at this particular slide, it's fascinating to consider that the text expressly says that man was made in God's image. I really like that word, don't you? It wasn't a suppositional thought of God. You and I as individuals bear the very image of the God of heaven. Now to be sure, that doesn't mean we physically look like God. God's a spirit, John 4.24 tells us, and a spirit does not have flesh and bones, Luke 24.39. The fact remains, though, that we bear a semblance. We bear a likeness, if you please, to the God of heaven. That does mean, doesn't it, that by the manner in which we are capable of living, we are able to exhibit the very same characteristics that God does. Now, to be sure, we can't exhibit them to the perfection that He does. But to say that God loves, you and I can do that. To say that God is a God of justice and mercy, we can be like that in the sense of living uprightly with both justice and mercy. I would ask you to notice in particular that one of the issues it seems that rises to the surface almost immediately is when it says that God's a spirit, we know that He is immortal. God will never die. He will never cease to be. He will never be annihilated. So too it is, as you and I study the marvelous Word of God, we find too that from the time of conception in the womb of a mother, that human being will never die. Oh, it's true that there, his physical death may well come, but in terms of that spirit that's him, in terms of the character of that image of God, that human being will never cease to be. He will live on and on for all eternity. That paints a rather dramatic picture, the seriousness characteristic of the choices in the life, of course, that you and I lead, including in the family. You'll notice beyond that, Look at this quality I mentioned a moment ago. We stated about love. God is love. In fact, one of the songs that is so often a challenging and beautiful thing, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. We read that in 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. And yet, you and I notice in the lesson text this morning directed to husbands, they were told to love. May I say to you, men, that as husbands we then should in love 
and borrow the very characteristics of God to help us carry that in the way we should. I would ask you to notice that another command or another characteristic of God is mercifulness, that of mercy. Fathers, before we're done today, we'll find that God would anticipate us knowing something about being merciful. Maybe in the final analysis, what about wisdom? I know as I, again, would have specifically addressed the men of the audience, fathers and husbands, we know how much we need wisdom. To lead a family the way it should go, to move a family the way it ought to go, we need wisdom. How often have you prayed for it? And yet, as we think about it, notice God is a God who is wise. 1 Corinthians 1, in fact, details that so beautifully for us. One by one, as we look at all of these attributes, and I've just listed a few, we're going to develop a lesson surrounding the characteristics and the detailed matters of a man in the family. Let me begin by saying, God has equipped a man to be able to carry out the expected duties that God has given him. God doesn't command of a man that which the man cannot do. God doesn't demand of a man that which that man was never prepared by the God of heaven to be able to do. And so as men, doesn't always say it'll be easy, but we can do that which God expects of us. And some of these things that He expects of us and these matters He sets before us are for very much the well-being of those in our household. It really is a prompting thing from love. With all those things in mind, let's then move nextly. And let's look at some detailed matters for you and me as husbands and men. What about the matter as you think about this attribute of love? I would ask, as you and I developed that just a moment ago, this continuation of it will be very significant. You'll notice at the very top of that slide... Sometimes in our society, you know, we tend to think of a man as less emotional than a woman, and that's probably true. Or we think about men as being far more stoic and far less sensitive and tender, if you please. That does not in any way set aside God's commandment of a man to love. The thing that's so critical is men will express that love different in most, in most cases than a woman, they will express that somewhat distinctively. You and I appreciate, though, as men, how that as we carry out that commandment of God to love, one of the first things we should ask is, what about the subjects of that love? There are several. Let's look at, one, let's look at them one at a time. First of all, you'll notice near the top of that slide, it is true, isn't it? Not only of men, but quite frankly of a woman too. There is a healthy amount of self-love, the appreciation of love for oneself, and that is not at all against the Word of God. I would ask you to notice in Matthew 22, verse 39, as Jesus made those unforgettable statements not long before He was crucified, He made reference to the first two commandments. Love God with all one's heart, soul, mind, and strength, but then second to it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He didn't say thou shalt just love thy neighbor. There was those last two words, as thyself. 
every healthy individual, both man and woman, understands that we appreciate ourselves. We have a self-awareness. We have a love for ourselves. And again, that is not a, a sinful thing by itself. You'll notice later on in Ephesians 5, verses 28 and 29, this matter appears to the surface again. It's at this point I would invite you to notice the wording because it's even more explicit there. Again, Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Let me begin in verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. As Paul gave that beautiful description in the closing verses of that chapter, he there commented in verse 28 that as he spoke about a man loving his wife, he then clarified it, qualified it, set it forth like this, as their own bodies. Again, every healthy individual will realize that he nourishes his body, he takes care of it, he tries to ensure that all is well with it. Notice again that there is a love for self. May I say, as you think about that, notice sometimes we live in a world where folks will call into question the dignity that's characteristic of self. Men, don't ever let anybody convince you that you're worth nothing, that you are nothing. You are made in the image of God. Love yourself properly, admittedly, but have a respect for and a regard for what you can be in the sight of God. And as you appreciate that, it will lead to emanations of the following. Don't ever let it become haughtiness. Don't ever let it become arrogance, for the Bible does condemn that. Romans 12.3 tells us, Let no man think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That doesn't say it's sinful to think highly of yourself. It just says, don't think more of yourself than what you should. As we then give regard for that degree of love, look what comes next. We understand that a man may then set his sights on the beauty of a woman and may ask her to be his wife. And as he does that, a union, at least with the finality of that marriage, a remarkable union is formed. In fact, the Bible calls it one flesh. There are no more twain but one flesh. May I say that at the moment that marriage ceremony is completed, that man has taken on additional duties, obligations, and responsibilities that he did not have before that ceremony began. He was a bachelor then. Now he's a husband. As a husband, God specifically gives to him some duties, responsibilities in the Word of God, and he must dutifully carry them out. One of them is this one. Love your wife. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, same place we were concerning just a moment ago, would you look again at another verse found in that passage? It is verse number 25, to which I'll turn your attention at least for the moment. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. I'm sure that every husband who has seriously entertained and thought about that verse almost buckles beneath the load of it. 
I realize on the day you marry that lady, you love her. It's more than infatuation. You have chosen to invest the rest of your life for her, and you want to be with her. But Paul didn't just say love her. He used as a comparison, or at least a consideration, love her, verse 25, as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. Men, the greatest gift you can ever give her is not diamonds. It's not flowers. It's not candy. All those things are fine. The greatest gift of all is the verse we just read. Love her like Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. As you present to her, show her, demonstrate, illustrate that kind of love to her, she will respond to you. And she will do so because that's the way God made her. May I suggest as you look at that, here are some comments that you might consider about it. Probably we're all well aware that there are several different Greek words for love. Which one was used here? You're probably aware that agape is maybe one of the most frequently referenced love forms in the New Testament. It's that particular kind of love that has behind it chosen behavior. That is to say, you make a mental determination with deliberation to carry out this set of activities. That's the way you love your wife. I fear sometimes we use a phrase that really doesn't do things justice. How often have you ever heard perhaps a TV show or some other substance talk about falling in love? You don't really fall in love. It's a conscious choice decision in which I will do the very best for her for all the days of my life and hers. It isn't predicated on convenience. It isn't predicated on social circumstances. It's predicated on a deep-seated, deep chosen set of actions and behaviors. That's the kind of love Jesus exhibited the church, didn't He? It says He gave Himself for it. Every time we see Jesus in our mind's eye hanging on the cross, He did that because of love. The church was going to exist because of what He was doing. He gave Himself for the well-being of that church. Husbands, we ought to give ourselves. Our love ought to be so motivated, sufficiently intact, that our love could be compared to that. Do we love our, our wives that way? If we aren't, what does that say about our obedience to a verse like this one? As you look further on that particular slide, you'll notice that as Paul described it here, to love your wives, the lesson text for this morning was taken from Colossians. That's a sister epistle to the Ephesians. Let's go look at what he said in chapter 3 of that book. Specifically, verse number 19. Colossians three nineteen. Husbands, love your wives. It sounds very similar to the previous one, doesn't it? But then it says, And be not bitter against them. In the incredible wisdom of the presentation of God, here, following that commandment to love, He said, Husbands, don't be bitter against them. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, you and I might at least in passing interest wonder, what is this being bitter the actual Greek word suggests embitter. In other words, don't conduct yourself in a way to promote bitterness in her. 
Again, God has made a woman very different than He has a man. And I don't mean just physically. There are emotional differences. There are other differences characteristic of male versus female. But we as men ought to appreciate the nature of those differences and don't conduct ourselves in such a way to purposefully and deliberately lead to ongoing bitterness in her life. Now I might say next Sunday as we discuss the women, God has much to say of course to them too. But for now, could I ask you to notice in 1 Peter 3, 7, there is yet another passage that addresses us as men, as husbands, about the way in which we could appreciate and not be bitter against them or cause them to, to lead to bitterness. Let me read verse 7 of 1 Peter 3. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Among other things, that certainly would include men in the capability of observation that God has given us. We, of course, over time should learn the intricate differences between the woman's psyche and that of a man. We may never fully understand her, and she may never fully understand us either. But the fact remains, we dwell with them by knowledge, meaning, again, don't embitter them. Don't conduct foolishly in such a way that you purposefully and deliberately do that which you know leads to great difficulty and harm in her life. But it goes on to say, giving honor unto the wife. Husbands, we need to honor our wives. Honor them. How often does the Bible present this distinction of honor? That honor carries with it proper respect, proper dignity. A husband will never ask his wife to conduct or behave herself in a way that's undignified, that's not loving. 1 Corinthians 13 longly describes love, and among other things, it never rejoices in what's evil. It never behaves itself inappropriately. You notice then, as husbands do those things, he still isn't finished. He says, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. May I say, husbands, that as we love our wives, the thing that has to be first and foremost is you want her to go to heaven. You want her to go to heaven. Everything you do in life, if you love her, ultimately is motivated by your wish to be with her in heaven. And you should never behave in such a way, by way of embitterment, by way of other things that might cause stumbling blocks spiritually to be placed in her life. That would not be loving. As you can see, as we come to the bottom of that particular slide, it prepares us for some more things as God addresses husbands. You'll notice on this particular slide, what about some additional attributes of this love that a man has? May I say, we well, could well appreciate the following. Husbands ought to love their children. If you're blessed with a child, one or more, love those children. Several verses in the Word of God that bring us to appreciate that, of course, again would point to us, a man may well show that love differently than his wife would. God made men and women different. We understand that. But the fact is, as a husband gives thought to this, never forget husbands, that in the Word of God, 
you and I occupy a position that at least is orchestrated similar to the fatherhood of God. God is our Father. Question, does He love His children? Does God love His children? We know that He does. In fact, He gave the prized possession of heaven for them. God loves His children. I've asked you to consider 2 Thessalonians 2.16 as well as Matthew 7, verses 7 through 9. In both instances, the beautiful description of a giving and loving God is set before us as a father. And you and I know that as a loving earthly father, we love our children. That love is manifested in some ways like this. How should we act or behave toward our children? The Bible again has given us some thoughts. In that Colossians chapter 3, same place that we were earlier, May I ask you to notice verse 21. This is the second verse that was read by Joe in our Bible reading earlier today. It says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Dads, there are some things that you and I can do that would be a discouragement to our children. There are behaviors, and in so doing, if we choose to follow that course of action... You'll notice it says, they might be discouraged. Now, Paul appears not to be talking about just some minor, short-term, temporary discouragement. Maybe they could be so confused, so perplexed, so much out of sorts, if you please, that maybe even their faith might waver. Their association to God might ultimately suffer because of it. Dads, may we never, ever, ever, provoke our children in such a way that that would be the consequence. Now, maybe your mind and mine could rush. What are some specific examples in which a father would provoke his children in this way? Well, I would ask you to notice, Paul doesn't in this point elaborate. The Greek word means, or it carries with it, the thought of resentfulness. You and I know that the psyche of a child, especially in those formative years, they are basically being embedded with those thoughts that shall guide them through the rest of their life. That's what the Proverbs writer said, train up a child in the way he should go. There's a period of formative years. Once they've reached their age of, say, 16, 17, 18, 19, somewhere along in there, their basic psyche has by and large been determined. If whatever you haven't done prior to then, it's likely it's going to be far more difficult, if at all, to accomplish it. In those formative years, don't behave toward them in a way that would cause them to question the nature of a loving God and the character of His Word. Don't ever cause them, by way of provocation, to sense that your life is not what it claims to be. They will spot hypocrisy in a, in a blind's eye. Don't ever be hypocritical around your children. They know whether you are what you say you are or not. When it comes to discipline, which we'll discuss briefly in just a moment, doesn't it highlight that as men, as those fathers in a family, may we never provoke them. Now, as you think about things that does not include, the Bible also helps us appreciate that there are certainly important matters relating to wisdom, relating to mercy. And I've asked you to think about those at the bottom. Fathers, don't ever expect more of your children than they can do. 
Sometimes we might be in a position of danger. Maybe there's an older brother or an older sister and they seemingly are so well able to do certain things, maybe play football or be an honor roll student. Maybe that other son or daughter just isn't that way. If you load more on them than what they physically can do, you may do far more damage, far more damage. Don't expect more than what God would expect them of their abilities. That takes, of course, prudence and wisdom on our part. Not only that, could I ask you to notice, don't ever be partial. Now, children are different. What may be proper approach to one in terms of discipline may not be the right for another, but don't ever be partial. If they ever sense there's a favorite, it could lead to fractioning in the family that will never be repaired. They need to be treated as equally as physically possible. In fact, Paul stated in 1 Timothy 5.21, let nothing be done out of partiality. And that certainly includes fatherhood. As you think then about your life and mine as fathers, as those that would be husbands, it does bring us to some remaining thoughts in our lesson this morning. We would be remiss not to say this. We have somewhat touched upon it, but perhaps it's time to do it justice. We understand in the family, God has specifically given to the man the leadership of that home. He's given it to us. That means, again, on that day that a man pronounces, I do, he takes upon him the role of the leader of that family. He can't shirk it. He can't set it aside, at least with, with impunity. God expects you to be the leader. You'll notice in light of that, you'll appreciate that several verses that you and I could immediately consider. What about the leadership of the man? One by one, these might be stated. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, we looked at that, in fact, a previous Wednesday night or two. We remember that it's true that God is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of the man, but the man's the head of the woman. In the fabric of the family, in the fabric of that which God has set forth, that is His dictation. Men, we can't absolve it. We can't just choose not to be it, again, without suffering some penalty from God. You'll notice in light of that, God has set forth the family as a patriarchal thing. It is not matriarchal in character. It's patriarchal. With that said, notice what comes. Men, we must be the spiritual leaders of our families. Let's start there. When it comes to encouraging attendance, man ought to never, the wife ought to never have to say, I think it's time to go to Bible study. It'd be a shame for the woman to have to say, I believe today's worship, aren't we going? Men, we need to take the lead and make sure that we and our family are here. There's no more important place for us to be than this. That spiritual leader would lift high the banner of godly things, Bible things. As fathers and as husbands, Think carefully then the kind of example you said. Are you lifting high the things of God in the way that you talk, in the way that you do speak to your wife or your children? Do your children ever see you speak or behave towards your wife in a way 
that would be unconducive to the spiritual well-being of her and the family. If so, you ought to repent of that. That's not good. It's not healthy. As the spiritual leader, the banner of spiritual matters ought to be lifted high. Examples might be these. Genesis 18, 19, Abraham was the spiritual leader of his family. In 1 John 2, verses 13 and 14, written in the New Testament era, young men and men in general were told, be that spiritual leader because you know God. Not only that, look what else follows. You appreciate then as the spiritual leader, there is nothing more beautiful, nothing more touching than the obedience of your family to the gospel. Fathers, and I know there are many young fathers, and we're blessed with young families here at Pippin, but there won't be many days rise more highly than that day that your son or your daughter obeys the gospel. And you have the privilege with tears streaming down your face to watch them be baptized into Christ. Work toward that goal. Live the kind of life that you should so that you can enjoy the sweetness of that day. Not just that day, but then to encourage their continual development in Christ throughout all their life. What a great blessing to consider. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That was told to fathers in Ephesians 6 verse 4. Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? That comes with so much obligation and weight, but what a great blessing for them. And yea, for your whole family, that will be. Maybe one set of final things. That means, fathers, we need to be ready to instruct. Didn't the writer of Proverbs refer to the instruction of a father? Proverbs 1 verse 8. Be ready with instruction. Kids are filled with questions. Dad, why? Dad, why'd you do it that way? Be ready with some answers, especially when it touches those things spiritual in character. When that Lord's Supper's passed around, Dad, why did you take that? Dad, why do you put money in that plate? Be ready to explain to your children so that they from an early age will be ready to appreciate and understand and they're being trained every time you do that. One by one, as we have looked at all these things today, our time is about past us by in our lesson. And men have been challenged, haven't we? We'll close our lesson with a very few brief remarks and the lesson's yours. As we think about the matter of men, that also means that discipline will be a part, of course, of the family. We understand we all need that to a certain degree, and that's also true of a child. When it comes time to discipline your children, as I stated earlier, again, children are different. But you do understand that just like God chastens and disciplines us, we should be ready to discipline and appropriately chasten our children. No wonder in light of all those things, the motivation should be love. To spank a child never ought to be done in an abusive way. It's done with proper motivation and love to change the behavior that has not been good. It's not a pleasant thing to be sure for either you or the child but it must be done appropriately. It must be done because of love. And when it's done, you appreciate the goal, of course, in all those verses is for the ultimate wisdom in that child. 
fathers, the responsibility that we've discussed today is a serious one. But you also know how much benefit and reward there is for those who give their attention to it. It might be there's somebody in the audience today, not just a man, but maybe someone who is not a member of the body of Christ. You realize, gentlemen, that the best husband and the best father will be a Christian. You realize, ladies, the best mother and the best wife will be a Christian. If you aren't a faithful Christian today, why not make those changes at once? Come to the side of Jesus. As an alien sinner, you do that by believing in Him, repenting of your sins, confessing His name, and being baptized. If you have erred from the faith after having been a Christian at one time, come back to your first love. That requires that you again make a confession of those sins to Him, repent of them, and let us pray to God for you. If today we could be of assistance to anybody, we would encourage and invite you to come at once while together we stand and sing.